Wild Precious Life is brought to you by Art Heals All Wounds, a podcast about artists transforming lives with their work. I don't know about you, but I feel like most of us have spent entirely too long in this season of brokenness, confusion, and loss. As the sun finally tiptoes out from behind the clouds, I feel myself opening to the possibility of wholeness and healing. That's where Art Heals All Wounds comes in. Each week, we hear from artists grappling with the problems we're all struggling with, too. We discover self-compassion, empathy, and common ground. One listener described Art Heals All Wounds as vulnerable and wise. Others have called it inspired and wholesome, like rediscovering the lost art of conversation. So, if you are longing for transformation— and ready to unlock your own inner artist, you can find Art Heals All Wounds wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned at the end of today's episode to hear a trailer. Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Lit Youngstown, a literary community proud to support beginning and experienced writers who seek to hone their craft, foster understanding, and share and publish their creative work. Read, write, and tell your story at LitYoungstown.org. And we're brought to you by Max Bax, a proud Cleveland indie bookstore with three floors for browsing, great online service, and chocolate milkshakes right next door. Find your next great read and shop online at MaxBax.com. What's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? I drove drunk once. I was young, 21, I'd had too much champagne, but convinced myself I hadn't. Another time, I hit a trash can texting and driving. Not my finest hour. What's the most physically difficult thing you've done? I mean, I had three babies without an epidural. I don't think those were actually the best decisions of my life either. I had this idea that I wanted to feel what my body knew how to do. But I think if I had it to do all over again, I'd probably take the drugs. What's the most mentally challenging thing you've ever endured? I feel like my list is a lot longer here. But again, largely due to lousy decisions I make, I'm always psyching myself out. You probably can't do this, or somebody else is more qualified or talented or a better choice for X, Y, or Z. And then, because I'm always psyching myself out, I need to psych myself back up, too. This takes a lot of mental effort. Today's guest had me thinking a ton about what we are truly capable of and how much stronger we are than we realize. Sylvia Vasquez-Lavado has embraced dangerous and difficult physical challenges and overcome quite a few mental ones, too. She has faced down her demons, worked through trauma, and hiked far above the clouds. Sylvia is one of the few women in the world to complete the seven summits, which means she has climbed the highest mountain on each continent. She's a humanitarian, a mountaineer, an explorer, and a social entrepreneur. Sylvia is the founder of Courageous Girls, a nonprofit that helps survivors of sexual abuse and trafficking find their voice and cultivate both inner and outer strength climbing mountains. Fortune Magazine has called Sylvia heroic, and she's been named one of the 20 most influential Latinos in Silicon Valley. 
Her debut book, In the Shadow of the Mountain, is a gripping account of overcoming childhood trauma by climbing Mount Everest. Sylvia Vasquez Lovato, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you, Anne-Marie. I am so excited and thrilled and honored for this invitation. Thank you. Oh, I am delighted, delighted that you're here. Um, I think like a lot of people my age, I first came to the modern story of Mount Everest via John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air. Mm -hmm. That's about the, the 1996 disaster in which eight climbers died on a single day. Your own hike, um, which you chronicle in your book, In the Shadow of the Mountain, comes one year after the deadliest Everest season in 2015. At least 22 people that we know of were killed in an avalanche that destroyed part of base camp. So I heard stories like these, and I thought to myself, nope, that's (laughs) probably not for me. But you... (laughs) You heard a very different call. Can you tell us, Sylvia, how did your Everest story begin? Yes, uh, definitely unexpected because I come from a country that is known for its mountains as well. Maybe not as high as the Himalayas, but we have one of the highest Andean and mountain ranges in the world, um, the Andes. And... Even Aconcagua in Argentina is the tallest mountain outside the Himalayan range. So I I always knew of mountains as scary places. And mountain climbers as the most daredevil, the most badass people who could only attempt. And of course, very much you needed to be a white. Well, in in Peru, we even knew about mountaineers who were like very tough. And and actually, we didn't even have a lot of local mountaineers. But, uh, But the perception is male-dominated, and you have to have this massive strength that I, I it never, you know, flew. I, I love this photo when I had, that I have, when my parents, we did one of our few family trips uh, into my mom's family close to the, the, the most precious part of the Andes, Huascaran, and I'm like about five, and everybody gets out and we're trying to get a foot on this boulder, which is maybe about four or five feet high. And my family's climbing and I have a massive tantrum too that I can remember because the fear of heights for me was unbearable. I just, and so I love seeing this photo and you can just see me at the bottom and totally having a meltdown because no way there is this, like it wasn't, it wasn't on, on, on my DNA. Um, but but so, yes, the idea of Everest, and of course, I knew what what it was, um, it never really, I, I never had any appeal to it. And it was literally until I had this powerful experience doing the ayahuasca with my mother and my father. Um, and, and just to backtrack a little bit, you know, unfortunately, The reason I left Peru was a way to run away from my painful past. Um, Just like, unfortunately, many, many, many women, the statistics have always been one in three, starting to be close to one in two, women that have to experience some kind of sexual trauma violence in their lifetime. And so for me, I was sexually abused as a little girl. And, uh, but the trauma, the pain, the memories that I had tried to outrun and try to disappear caught up to me in my 20s. And I started dealing with it by becoming a raging alcoholic Um, as a way of, I mean, I, you know, there was a lot of secrets in my family. So we always felt, well, 
at least I can numb the pain. And, and, and then the coincidence in my own personal life, I, I, I realized I was gay and I didn't have a lot of support of my family. So, she, so you know, that part of my own community uh, as n not being accepting, I think only made my, my kind of this um, vortex of self-destruction even bigger. So I had hit rock bottom and my, my, I, that was the very first time I asked for help and my mother had me come down to Peru and do this ayahuasca session. And on this vision, I, I remember going into this session feeling that I was possibly going to encounter all the negative people trying to destroy my life. But instead, I saw me as a little girl the little girl who had endured the abuse, the little girl that I had been trying to destroy as an adult. I, I always, anytime I would see any pictures of my childhood, it had this effect on me of shame, of anger. How could she didn't be, you know, it's her fault. And so, and then I see her just wanted to be held, just, I mean, wanted to be protected. And in my heart, I remember just coming to her, protecting her. And as we are reconnecting, I'm, I'm feeling this powerful energy. And then we hear these noises and then room, these mountains form, um, I mean, in, in front of us. And then my little girl, you know, as we see these mountains, she pulls my hand and takes me walking into valleys. So that was the imagery that came on this ayahuasca session that was powerful. That it was enough for me to to start uh, using my logic and, and realizing, okay, well, if I need to bring this massive pain and walk into a mountain, why don't I bring it to the tallest mountain in the world? And so that's the idea that started with walking to the base of Everest with a caveat that I had never walked to a mountain. Like I've never trekked in my life before. <laughs> I, I just... I, I I think um, you know you're you're in a sense I mean, and and I, I there there was this part I wonder who made the decision if it was me the adult or my little girl but it just felt like well just logic and and I just went in not knowing what to expect I think I had been haunted by my by by the memories of my abuse by my own shame that it somehow was I felt as if I had nothing else to lose and. It led me into this journey, and when I got to the base of Everest, um, I saw the sunrise coming between Everest and, and, and Lhotse, and that was so powerful to put the seed for me. I remember seeing the mountain not as, uh, as something to conquer, but I remember as something really spiritual, very powerful. Um, I was raised Catholic and, and I, you know, have a lot of reference for, for the Virgin, especially, I mean, I, I do have, you know, my private, you know, praying practice and I always pray to the Virgin. There, there's always this connection to, to the mother figure. And there was something really maternal about just this, you know, beautiful, um, I mean, the surroundings were just stunning. And then you just see Everest Almighty. And, and I remember one of the local guides telling me there that in Tibetan, Everest means mother of the world. So, so I think that that connection, the symbology of it, was enough to put that seed into me 
knowing that even from that that vantage point that I, that I was, it looked scary and it looked something that only crazy people would do. But but I, I remember just that, and but then you know my Virgo also kicked in and said I'm looking at making the promise. I'm like I I want to come back one day and climb to and, and attempt to to go to the top of Everest, but I have two conditions. You know I need to become a mountaineer because it looks scary, and and I think you know becoming a mountaineer will likely make me a little tougher, and I have to come back with a social cause because there was a way of giving back, and I, it's just because of the impact of the experience. So. So that is how the whole thing started for me, and and that is what led me to this unique journey. I'm astonished by so much of your story. First off, that you are afraid of heights, because I am also quite afraid of heights, and I've always used that as the reason, well, that's why I won't become a mountaineer. <laughs> but now you're <laughs> you're putting some lie to that that um, that idea. So. You, you hiked to Everest the first time to the base camp, which for folks who've not learned Everest and who haven't read your book, that, that's, that's the starting point, actually, for the journey up to Camp 1, Camp 2, Camp 3, Camp 4, and then ultimately the summit. But you got to the base camp and you realized, okay, I will do that one day. And then you went back down and became a mountaineer. How does one do that? How does – what is – to go from not hiking to hiking, how many trips is that? Did you start with a smaller mountain? Can you take us through yeah, your yeah. journey? And, and I should maybe put a disclaimer. Yeah, the base of Everest is close to 17,500 feet. So, so yeah, just as a little disclaimer. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a starting. That's not like a train. You, it, you started with one of the hardest things ever. I, I guess we should start. The, how, how hard was that? Were you out of breath? Were you, what did it feel like? No, the, the very first time, and, and I think, you know, your being naive can take you places. Um, and, and just the whole, I, I think just what led me to even walk into the base of Everest, it was, it was this curiosity, but it's also, I remember imagining this little girl in me. And there was, I mean, I think the most powerful part that had happened to me was this beautiful, almost whole reconnection to, to, for me to acknowledge in becoming whole again. I mean, I had been trying to destroy a part of me. And I think the fact that I was trying to do this trip by myself, you know, imagining this, this, you know, this little inner girl in me, um, I guess that took a lot of uh, distraction or it took me away from, from the, you know, getting in your mind, like, oh, how am I feeling? Um, and I was just simply also going without any expectations. I, I only had seven days the very first time I went into this track and it takes about two weeks to properly do. And I would highly recommend to anyone doing it, yes, do two weeks. I mean, when I, when I look at just how everything turned out, I feel it, it, you know, it, it was possibly this chance, the fact that I had been destroying my life and almost the universe having compassion on me and being like, well, let's, let's spare this one and give her a little, a, a little reason or a little hope. But I got to, to possibly the entrance of the Himalayas on my second day. And when I saw the Himalayas for the first time, it was this boom, powerful um, encounter. For the very first time in my life, I felt a connection I had never felt before with any human. 
there was a sense of protection, a sense of welcoming, a sense of safety. And because my life had been lacking that, it inspired me. And if anything, I felt a sense of strength started to brew out of me. So I made it to the base of Everest in four days. I, I literally got two, insp- there, was, there was something about, I want to see more. I mean, just like, just like anything in life, when you're having a great time, you don't want it to finish. You don't want it to, you don't want things to end. And, and I was just, I just kept, I, there was this fire that came inside. I'm overwhelmed just thinking about, I'm still stuck on the fact that you started with the trek to base camp. So for folks who have not read your book, it's actually really two stories simultaneously. In, in I would say, half the chapters, you are climbing Everest, and we're, we're along for the journey with you. And in other chapters, <clears throat> you were talking about your life story, some of which was beautiful, and we learn about your childhood Peru and in Peru, and and some of which, as you've mentioned, is incredibly difficult. Um, so, so first off, thank you for sharing that story. I know that putting those things out there surely must have been difficult sometimes, but I'm grateful that you shared because I saw firsthand in the book the way you sharing your trauma helped so many other people to begin to work through their own, too. That's such a gift. So then when when did you come to view mountain climbing as a form of healing? Because I feel like somewhere along the way, it went from I am climbing these, these high things to I am, my life has been hard sometimes, and I, I haven't been able to choose those hardships but I can choose this difficult thing. I can be in charge of it and I can walk through it and I can look at the beauty and my strength. So I feel like there was a shift somewhere in your in your story, but when did you start to look at mountain climbing as healing? I think there were signs from the very beginning. Um, the biggest, I guess, discovery was how present I needed to be in the moment and how much connection to my body I needed to have. Um, And when you unfortunately are a survivor, um, when you unfortunately go through through an addiction, it's almost like we we live with, and and we have a devil inside of us. We have these, you know, energy that is trying to self-destroy us, um, which unfortunately is, is us. And I would say I possibly found the healing aspect in Aconcagua. I I think especially I had had one of my hardest years. Um, and I I remember going with the idea that I wanted to kick the sh- out of a rock. I, I was so mad at life. I'm just like, you know, I need to get it out. I just need to like express my my anger. And so I really wanted to just you know, get it out with nature, almost like, well, it, let's get into this, like, fight. And of course, you know, oh, the mountains have been in existence for millions of years. I'm just, you know, a little passenger on the on, on this voyage. And yeah, I mean, the mountain won. Uh, and it definitely kicked the hell out of me. But it also pushed me to to start feeling myself and developing self-compassion. That that evening, the night before the summit in Aconcagua was so epic for me because it was maybe 
the very first time that I was able to cry on my own and really let it out. I mean, let I mean, I couldn't hide anywhere. And I think that's what I have really appreciated about nature, if if we allow it. I mean, I think unfortunately, because of everyday life, we get too wired. It's almost we are too caffeinated with distractions and, and we we kind of stay on this box. And we are as of these little hamsters that are running around. I mean, so it becomes this endless loop. Yet when you're in nature, and especially after a couple of days, 72 hours, it's almost the box opens up. And this is when we, if we allow it, we have a sense of kind of, you know, re-reconnecting to ourselves. And, and so for me, at close to 21,000 feet, you know, it, it, that <laughs> definitely the pressure uh, changed quite a bit. But I remember it was then, it was possibly that, that's what that emotional breakdown was so pivotal for me. Because I, it, I mean, and this is the other part that I have loved about this whole journey, you know, having a breakdown, feeling yourself at your most vulnerable doesn't mean that you're weak. If anything, it's meant the opposite. Those breakdowns the next day have led me to summits. I mean, that that insecurity, that whole part about, I can't do this, I am done, I can't, it's fear, but it's almost, and you just have to let go of that fear. So, so that was possibly the most pivotal experience for me at Concagua. And it set up, the, I mean, it changed in my head my whole narrative of, of actually what I was trying to create. And, and then I also got purpose of, you know, what I needed to, to start working and, and kind of bring in the young women. But, uh, but I thought that was possibly, I, I thought that was the beginning of really seeing how, much, how, how nature could be healing and the, con- the connection. And, and it only has, you know, I mean, for the rest of my journey, I think I, I, it allowed me just to keep learning more through it. No, I, I definitely saw that in your in your story, and I love your definition of compassion. It's it's um, what allows pain and love to sit next to each other. I'd never thought about it like that, but what allows pain and love to sit side by side and allowing ourselves to receive the love and the protection. You talk about that when you're traveling. So for folks who haven't read the book, you went to base camp once, decided you needed to be a mountaineer, went back down and climbed other mountains. But then you go back and we pick up your story on a hike to base camp. You aren't alone. You're leading several other women, several other survivors. And you're not climbing alone and you're not climbing quickly, right? The first time you climbed very, very quickly and you you you've mapped it out for the girls and and you're climbing very slowly much much slower than you had planned will you tell us about uh, you call them the courageous girls i know that for your organization but will you tell us about the girls that you hiked to base camp with um and just tell us a little bit about that journey i am bringing these young women on my way to attempt climbing the tallest mountain in the world and most people try to focus, I mean, just focusing on trying to climb the tallest mountain in the world should be your sole focus. That's and enough. Yeah, you know, just that should be enough for any normal human being. <laughs> but, but for me, yeah, let me bring novices who could potentially die and let me carry this massive stress and not knowing what's going to happen before I do this climb. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, where my mindset was, um, 
No, but there was something about promises, and that's something, I mean, and, and I love, and, and hopefully we'll get back to this about what I said earlier in the book, it looks like a mountaineering book, but at the end of the day, it's not. I mean, it, it is, and, and, and we'll, I'll bring this up a little later, but, but so I remember putting the conditions and saying, I need to come back with a social cause and, and come back as a mountaineer, and the social cause came to me when I did Aconcagua about bringing other survivors from San Francisco and Nepal to the base of Everest so that they could have the opportunity of reconnecting to their courage and strength the way that happened to me. Um, and so that eventually manifested and, and I worked, I mean, I, I ended up um, creating this nonprofit and almost having this guinea pig group of young women. <laughs> because, you know, on, on top of this, yeah, I should add the disclaimer, there was no guarantee that this was going to work. I was following. I, w- I was following this vision that came to me at twenty-two thousand feet, sleep deprived, and feeling like, "Oh yeah, that's logical." <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, I got. Um, you know, the, the one aspect that I really that was very important for me is that, and nobody when I was in their shoes at their age had really reached out to me. There was so much secrecy in my family. It's almost like, well, you know, you're in the U.S., deal with it. And and so there was something important for me to see for these young women what could have happened. Um, and, and many of them, I mean, especially when I very first, when I when I met the Nepali girls, which was, was very difficult, um, even when we did one of our training hikes, they had never had a, a hiking shoe. They, I mean, they only walk with sandals. Um, based on their location. So so for them, and even for them, going to the base of Everest was cost prohibited. And it was always something that, e, you know, and, and they have in in Nepal, in Nepali culture and in some Hindu culture, they have these caste systems. It's almost, you know, well, if you are from this level, how can you dare attempting something higher? So, um, and, and so it was interesting that for me, we had been training, especially here with the U.S. and in Nepal. I, I was able to have a couple of friends who, who were helping me with the training of the girls. But it was the opportunity of having this experiment to all of us attempting going to the base of Everest. And, and I kind of was playing their, their, their mom. I was being their mother figure. Um, but there was no script. You know, this unknown. I mean, we, we just knew we were going to take our time. Um, and, I, and this is what I love about the journey because you can tell I had a script, but it's not going according to my script. And, and all of a sudden it's like, oh God, what am I, what am I doing? But that's what life is. Um, but it is powerful because I love how the roles turn. And ultimately it is, you know, these young women who teach me healing. You know, my two favorite chapters, Rhythm and Nothing We Do Is Small, is truly powerful because you actually, is one of the very few times where you can see healing happening. And it, it, you know, healing, the vulnerability healing, which leads to a strength. Um, and, and so that was just absolutely magical and, and just learning by them. And, but yeah, I, I think it's quite comical as how it goes about and with, you know, it's almost trying to bring teenagers and just, you know, feeling that, oh, yeah, everybody's going to, going to really follow what you want and not really. So you're climbing to base camp with these these women, these survivors, but you're going to then at base camp meet your mountaineering team where you're going to go to the summit. So you you've got you've got a little bit of a timetable. And so I I loved a part where 
you you see that the girls need to sit. They need to really commune. And you you factored about forty five minutes. You, you factored a little bit of time. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna just let's let's go ahead and let's just get this. Let's share our stories real quick, and then we'll have a snack, and then we'll keep walking. And so, but you, you write some beautiful things about you know stories are complete, however they come out, and that they're not going to come out on your Sylvia's timetable, right? These are women who've carried with them stories of abuse and neglect and having been trafficked and sold into kinds of slavery and escape. These are huge stories that they're going to come out when they're going to come out. And it's not going to be according to your plan or even necessarily according to theirs. But when it comes to talking about trauma, the women you're hiking with, let out those details slowly. There's not a tidy beginning, middle, or an end. And it's so true of the the way that, that trauma work needs to happen. You don't get to say, all right, I think I got it licked today. We just we fixed it. Check. Done. Right? It is, you're going back. You didn't hike one mountain and decide, oh, I, Sylvia, am forever healed. Done. Right? It, it's an ongoing journey. And there's some beautiful work you do in the stillness where you realize, I need to stay in this room and I need to bear witness and we're all going to just, that's what we're doing today. I thought we were hiking and actually we're going to sit here. We're not, and, and just, there were some beautiful, beautiful, vulnerable, vulnerable moments. And we were, I think you and I both raised to look at vulnerability as weakness. And it is so the opposite, to be vulnerable, to share my softest parts with you and for you to share those with me is what an act of courage and strength and bravery to do that. And I saw you squirming sometimes in these rooms because you got to meet the group. You got you don't have time, but you make time because this was the important work of that moment. Um, and there are some beautiful stories. I think it was Jimena who said, we're not ascending, we're transcending. Having, I guess, the strength and the wisdom to create space and to let things unfold. And, and that is what it is so pivotal. And that's what Nothing We Do Small, that chapter in which we are able to, to really come together and just seeing. And I had never heard, I mean, I had visited Nepal by then multiple times. I had been in connection with the girls and as much as as much as I knew, as much as I thought I knew them, um, it I mean it was the very first time that they were opening themselves up. I mean that they felt safe enough to 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 have, they felt secure and safe, and and I I think and the same with with the you know with the girls that I brought from here, but it is what you know that support that connection that strength that. I, I still, whenever I'm able to think back to that moment, um, it, it's just true, truly magical. It's one of those powerful experiences that even at the end, by the time we were done with the circle, I remember feeling like this was it. This was our mountain. You know, this is, there's no, the pressure, you know, took away. I mean, because up to then I was like, oh God, are we going to make it? And what is it going to be? When, like, are we even going to have a breakthrough? And is something going to happen? And but it was quite humbling to see that, you know, healing takes its time. Um, you can put the elements and you just have to trust and you just have to let it unfold. And the beauty, what can come after 
you know, it's something unmatched. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. So for those of us who may never set foot on that mountain, can you just tell us what does a good day up there look and feel like? I think in in any mountain, in a beautiful day, you just have unobstructed views to to like beyond anything. I mean, you can see it doesn't, and and it is not. You know, you need you don't need to go to something that tall. I mean, in most places, there are some um, quote hills, or, or but it is like the minute that you can get to the top. I love the vantage point. I mean, sometimes you have a gorgeous view of the endless ocean. Um, but there, there, I think if you allow it to be in the span of a couple of days, there, there is something very meaningful. And, and I think the, the, one of, one of the, one of the most treasure moments for me at Everest was right before the summit, I think is even before I saw the pyramid, when I'm seeing the transition from night to day um, I, I had even seen a storm happening, you know, far away and I had been higher than the storm and, and who can say that? I, I think that was just something like, okay, wow. Um, but, but then when the sun came out and you just have these incredible views and you're so high up and I think I had a perspective about, whoa, I brought myself here my two little skinny legs got me this far. And, and there was a powerful appreciation. I mean, I already had, had you know, we, we already had been on, on this journey for close to six weeks and up and down, you do, you know, you do a lot of like, okay, you know, we keep doing it. We're, we're still in the running. But there was something of a beautiful perspective at that point, just because of the magnitude and just how, um, you know, I mean, you just have this infinite view it doesn't stop, and you just know how high you are. Um, but it's that self appreciation, and, and so at, in a smaller scale, going to any mountain, that's usually what you get, and and it's a it's a powerful opportunity for self reflection. I think I feel being in nature has allowed my self love to really grow, um, and I and that is to me what we I, I think not to not to to just uh, try to be too intrusive on anyone, but self-love has been, you should, has been the fuel that has allowed me to, you know, to continue. Um, you know, ego can take you so far, but, but just having that appreciation, and, and I think that's what, you know, mount, time in mountains, time in nature has given me, is, is that opportunity of appreciating yourself um, and, and really just opening to to new possibilities and, and, you know, to new ideas. Well, I'm not a mountain climber, but so much of the wisdom that you learned 
up there seemed 100% applicable to those of us down here, too, right? Whether it's we're going to have our bad days and we're going to lose sight of where we're going, <clears throat> that it would be wise to remember that those those days usually do pass. They just do. You also talk about nobody climbs a mountain alone. It's It's not something that you do alone. No one does that alone. Not the first people. They didn't do that alone and not any. You are climbing with other people. And whether that's a a literal mountain or, for many of us, a figurative mountain, you are not alone in your suffering. You're not alone. You don't have to be alone in your fear. And just like you experience, sometimes it it takes someone like Lydia or someone we know who says, yeah, that scary thing you went through was scary. Mm-hmm. That awful thing that happened was awful. And for you to feel afraid or despondent or unsure of whether you can go on, that's a completely normal response to that big thing that happened. And you're right, just having someone validate that, say, it's okay, and you're not by yourself, makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, connecting this to the very first question that you asked me, you know, when I remember getting to the base of Everest, I remember seeing, you know, this dream, this this. I remember telling telling myself, okay, I'm going to come back and attempt to climb it one day. And even then, by saying that, I'm like, I'm saying I want to climb Mount Everest, which is, I think up to now, there's up to only maybe 6,000 people in the world. No, actually, I think there's 6,000 summits. And um, and I guess, yeah, I think there's been 6,000 summits in the mountain. It's about 3,000 of us who have done it. And out of that, half of them or most, most of them are Sherpas, are local Nepalis. And if you start taking it, the number of women, you know, it's less than, you know, four or 500. But, but, you know, I think, you know, Everest as a metaphor in terms of, you know, trying to climb it is, you know, this impossible dream. But what I like about the, the connection with the book, that's a metaphor to any of our dreams. They always, I mean, this dream, anything that looks impossible is doable. And it is about what is what are the different tools, what is the community that we need to create that you know will help us supporting it, and and then that's what I have loved. I mean, like the you know at the end of the day, I mean the message of the book is is yeah it it, it kind of is wrapped in a, in a whole mountain experience, but at the end of the day, it's like we all can achieve our Everest, inner inner Everest, out of Everest, we all have it. And yes, they're going to look impossible and they have to look impossible. But also knowing that we have, I mean, and, and the journey for us to reach to reach to them will transform us is what is actually going to put us in a different, I mean, you know, be, being, being a couch potato, um, mind, I mean, you might not be able to bring the couch there, but just even just that action of getting yourself out on whatever it is that we want to do can happen and you know but it will happen yet you know it's going to be it's going to be trickier to do it alone it will be more frustrating but you need to trust that it is in, in you it's just taking that step knowing that you will have setbacks and and that's kind of what I what I really enjoyed about this whole journey yeah i mean the very beginning look impossible it's like oh one day i'm going to do this and i i just love as a metaphor how we all have our inner out of everest um, and it's about the different tools of, I mean, the tools and knowing the connect, you know, how connected we are into each other 
and allowing, if we are able to allow that space to come, I think it would only help us achieve and get wherever we need to go. Well, I felt incredibly inspired by your story from the opening dedication to the final lines that this, um, you write, for for all those who have yet to climb, you are not alone. I did. I took that literally and figuratively. You're letting us know that it's, it's okay if we have not yet faced our mountains. It is all right if our toughest challenges are, are still ahead, if the shadows that you talk about are still haunting us. Um, the journey will be there when we are ready and the healing is going to come as we move through it. I felt um, just a lot felt possible reading your story, both on and off the mountain. Anne-Marie, that is exactly the dream that I had. And and I, I and it's hard when you when you are, you know, on this side of you know of the story in which you you know you're putting it out there. And I always had, I remember when writing it, just knowing how honest, raw, and vulnerable, and knowing too that it wouldn't be easy to digest uh, at first. Um and I know, I mean, and, and that's the one thing, too, I had to, I mean, being on this particular journey, you, I, I all, all I want, well, all my, the, the, my main purpose with the book was to hopefully touch to someone who was feeling alone, who was maybe going through an addiction, who felt that, you know, what I went through as a kid was just unbearable and nobody has been there. And I haven't read anything that, that anybody can um, you know, has been that that honest and vulnerable. So I I remember feeling the opportunity of sharing the story in a way of saying things that are hard to say. Um, you know, I've had many family members who haven't read the book because it's hard, um, and I've had readers who've told me, God, the first couple of chapters is 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 they're really tough. And and I I've been respectful when when talking through a lot of this that. People are enamored by the story, but they are like, hey, trigger warning, <laughs> you know, it, it can have some of these. But but also, I've loved whenever I see these gorgeous photos of scenes in which you just see the sun or the moon really high, and sometimes you see a little bit of clouds underneath, but you can just see how powerful they look. I just, you know, it's like, yeah, we're, the book has its turbulences. We're going to have to go through turbulences. We're going to have to get hit, but just trust it because by the end of it, you're going to close it. And you're gonna get inspired. You're gonna be at the peak with me, and and that's uh, I mean, and and to just to to be able to share this opportunity. I mean, it's the biggest gift. I mean that that I I feel I have this opportunity to to kind of engage. But no, I think I mean it's it's something that it's holding us. And I I tell people, and and when I say it, I, I'm not trying to exaggerate. I mean, when people see me, I'm no different from you. I mean, I even didn't start doing this until my 30s. So it's not somebody, it's not something that, yeah, my dad took me to do this. No, at all. I mean, like it started, you know, it started in the most unsuspected ways. And, but we all have it. And, and the one part, and I, one thing I do clarify, I don't have speed. So I don't do this. I mean, I never try to go and break a speed record. I just have endurance. And endurance is taking your time. Endurance is simply, don't, I'm, not, I'm not having to prove anything to anyone. And I always go with a learning mentality. And, and that's what I find how mountains can be so powerful and healing. If, if we go, 
And also, I've never gone into them like, oh, I'm going to conquer this. I go into them just, wow, well, I'm almost going into a temple and just showing some kind of respect. And, and I think that has made my experience powerful. And so it's an invitation for people to to hopefully, you know, give it a little, you know, give it a little sip. I, I love my tea. So it's like, you know, just have a <laughs> tiny sip of this and see what, what you might feel. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I could listen to you talk about climbing all day. We always end here just with a few, um, I, I don't know, like a quick quick questions. They're different than the conversation. So I'm going to yeah. ask you just like some multiple choice and you can just pick no, one, I, I, okay? okay? I'm prepared. No script of this. <laughs> I'm about to do everything. Yeah. Let's... All right. So we'll start with a few multiple choice. Um, dogs or cats? Dogs. I'm allergic to cats. Oh, all right. Coffee or tea? Tea. I thought maybe tea. Yes. yes. <laughs> this is a funny one for you. Mountains or beach? Ah, <laughs> huh, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done a couple mountains and then I've gone to a beach after, but but mm. definitely a mountain. <laughs> um, are you an early bird or a night owl? I'm a night owl. Yeah. Um, are you loud or quiet? I'm quiet. Isn't that interesting? I, I was going to guess that you would say quiet too, yeah, although I, I can see the perception might be. Yeah, the, it's, I, I still get shy. I mean, I, I go to events and I'm like, okay, build it. But you know, I'm, I think I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm quiet. I'm, I, you know, I love how sometimes people tend to underestimate me and, um, I, I think it's fine. I mean, but but yeah, it's almost like, you know. <laughs> um, if you could time travel, would you rather go forward in time or back in time? Ooh, 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 ooh. That's a very unique one. I would say, I have to say, don't cry or spill milk. So forward. I would love to find out, okay, once we are connecting to, I would like to see who is the Martian Bill Gates or who is the Martian, <laughs> who is the Martian Hillary Clinton. <laughs> it would be interesting <laughs> to meet them. <laughs> I love it. Oh, all right. And these are a few short answers. What's something um, quirky that folks don't know about you, like a pet peeve or something you like or love or don't like? What do people not know? I am a klutz. I am I'm totally absent-minded. I I have, I mean, the joke with, with my closer fr friends and my family, one of the things I've done well on, on mountain climbing is because I, I have actually my spikes on my crampons, else, I mean, they hold me on some place. Oh, yeah, I'm a total klutz. I fall constantly. Oh, yeah. So I'm, you're standing... Yeah more than 20,000 feet in the air and the path is three feet wide and you're telling me that you are clumsy, that you're clumsy. I am incredibly clumsy. I'm a total klutz. And the fact that I've been alive doing this, it's, you know, it's the power prey. <laughs> wow. Oh, well, what do you love about where you live? Oh, San Francisco? God. It's, I mean, it's, I, I fell in love by seeing my first gay parade. Uh, and I joke that I almost moved to New York, but I never saw a gay parade there because it was a wrong time I was visiting. So, you know, <laughs> what, you know it would have been a different story maybe. Um, 
But I love how accepting they've always been. Um, this city, you know, has gone through a lot of transformation. And I think it's, it's just, you know, there is so much. There, there is the culture part of it. Um, there is the mountains around it. There, there is just, I, I love the mindset. You, you just have people are incredibly open. So there is, there is that aspect of inclusion. I mean, um, but no, I, I, I've loved how we led the way in terms of, at least for gay rights, uh, even though New York has been in the forefront of so many other places, but at the time when we had Gavin opening up and, and taking the bold step of, of allowing gay marriages, I, I think there's something, and, and to me, it's my community. So, I mean, I, I've, I did all my training pulling tires and carrying weights in, in Marin, San Francisco. In wow. San Francisco. So it's just showing, I mean, that, yeah, it's, it, we have everything here to do it. Uh, I didn't know that. Wow. Um, what's your favorite book or movie or both? Or a favorite book? Yeah, a, a favorite book. I mean, I am a I'm a sucker for biographies or memoirs. I just I love it, it's it's the way I think is how I keep getting inspired by by really powerful women. Um, well, I mean, you know, Wild was was quite. A, it's a, a ten year anniversary of that book. I yep. was just looking at Cheryl Strayed posted about that. Yes, it's. I mean, I think that was quite defining. Um, I I mean. I love books that have, for example, books that have changed my mind. Um, the Body Keeps Score by Vess and Badger Kolk. Highly recommended, especially for people with trauma. You know, incredibly powerful, inspiring story that I think would would allow people to to see things in, in a, you know, I mean, it, to me, it was like, oh, my God, as if somebody was showing me like, hey, this is a sunset. I'm like, wow, that, that was just incredible. So that's a good one. That's a good one. Films, I have to tell you quickly, Forrest Gump. I, think it's, <laughs> I, I, I just love I feel I'm at times I'm a version of Forrest Gump. I keep going through life like, really? Okay. <laughs> we watched that recently with my kids, and that holds that holds up, that movie. It, that, you know, that, some, sometimes you're not sure if a movie will that you liked before that you'll still like, but that holds up. That and Cast Away, actually, have my two favorite films. I, I, I have one of my tires that I pull. I call it Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> I do all my trainings on my own. So <laughs> that's excellent. Oh, um, let's see. What's your favorite ice cream? Oh, strawberry. Strawberry and passion fruit, but strawberry gelato, sucker for them. Lovely. All right. And last one if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see you doing? Oh, you'll see me at the top of any hill. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just see me, you know, with some tires. That that would make me very happy. <laughs> All sweaty and just like, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you, Sylvia, for coming on the show today and for reminding us um, what you wrote about, quote, our stories do not have a beginning, middle, and end. They are a continuum. One person's story tumbles into and out of another person's. My journey continues with you and yours with me. Um, and nobody climbs alone. Nobody climbs alone. We're all here. And all of our dreams are achievable. Any single one of it. Nothing is impossible. Even going to Mars for those who want it. Patience. <laughs> 
Thank you. Folks, our guest today has been Silvia Vasquez-Lavado, a humanitarian and explorer um, whose book, In the Shadow of the Mountain, made me think a lot about courage and possibility and all we can do to do good in this world. Thank you, Sylvia, for being here. And um, to everyone who's listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself and one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrove and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know if I even realized what the term artist meant when I first started making things. Welcome to Art Heals All Wounds, the podcast where we meet artists transforming lives with their work. And this opera company in Orange County, Southern California, wanted to do a project that focused on the Latino cultural experience. That sort of began my trajectory into writing opera. To see this representation that reflected back a part of the history that actually included my, my people. It made me feel seen in this powerful way. Very often a poem begins in absence for me because then it opens up a realm of imagined possibility. We hear their stories of how their work grapples with all of the issues that we all grapple with. She wanted the best for me. I mean, being a single mom, I remember she gave me a Fisher-Price camera. I would carry it everywhere. People being evicted left and right. And I remember walking down the streets and just saying, oh my God, this is not my city anymore. And then the melody came and a whole song came and it came so quickly. As I became an adult, I started getting terms like feminist terms and political terms and ways of understanding what it means to be different. And I started wanting to change the field of media. And I started to make friends with people that didn't have disabilities. And I used to try and act as much as I could like them because I wanted to be what people call normal. Through stories, we gain empathy for others and we find compassion for ourselves. The stories that you tell yourself are the story of, that you're making of your life. It's not the truth of who you are, it's the story that you're living. When it comes to stories around disability, that there's joy, there's, there's sex, there's humor. This podcast is an invitation to find inspiration together. I say I'm a personal accountability partner. You tell me what you want to do and let's find a way to get it done. Creativity is a human right. We're all born being artists. I'm a human being first and foremost, and then I am a creator. Listening to the stories of these artists helps us to live our best creative lives. If you can keep your joy, no matter what brings you joy, there are just so many modalities of art. There's no way you can't be a better person. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts or at our website, arthealsallwoundspodcast.com. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, Book Nerds. Nerds. 
two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!